From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. It is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. So we won't be taking your phone calls today. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And uh, Colin, uh, this is a mailbag edition because today is the annual Advent retreat for our employees uh, held at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament. And it's a great joy for us at the beginning of the Lenten season, at the beginning of the Advent season, when there isn't a worldwide global pandemic going on, for us to be able to get together for a time of retreat. And retreat in the mind of Holy Mother Church is a very important thing, uh, uh, to the point that it's mandated on an annual basis for her clergy, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a very important component for clergy and lay people alike to take intentional time to develop their relationship with our Lord, huh? Yeah, it is. And in fact, in mentioning that mandate, uh, also before taking uh, vows or holy orders, because those are grave decisions and you want to do it with the Lord, uh, uh, as it were, that's uh, also required there. And it's even encouraged, too, just, uh, you know, for, for married people to do that from time to time, although our possibilities in the world today are, are, are difficult in actually getting to retreats, but uh, there are um, you know, there are books and things to help people through that. So it's something you can do yourself even. But it's definitely a good idea, whether it's a seasonal retreat such as uh, Advent or Lent, as we try to arrange for employees here at EWTN, or whether it's uh, some other time of the year that's uh, significant to you where you want to take a day off and con- contemplate uh, holy topics with the Lord. You know, I was part of a charismatic evangelical campus ministry group when I was in college, and they uh, placed a lot of value in the words that you spoke, mm-hmm. uh, like way too much value in the words <laughs> that you... You know, some of us don't place enough value on the words that we speak. This group placed too much to the point that you couldn't you couldn't call your child a kid because that is what you call a baby goat. And that is confessing rebellion over your child. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how ridiculous things got. And one thing that they would do is they didn't like the word retreat because we are the church militant and we uh, don't retreat from anything. And True. they would mm-hmm. call a time of like this an advance instead of a, <laughs> instead of a retreat. So, so talk talk a little bit about you know really the idea behind a retreat and you know some of the components that really are maybe mm-hmm. essential yeah. to a retreat keeping in mind that they can take on a pretty broad breadth of forms and still kind of fit the same idea right and like a lot of things in the church that is uh, you know uh, technically a devotional practice, it developed out of monastic practices. If you look at the the way the Desert Fathers lived, they retreated from the world. They left the world and they went into the desert in order to get closer to God. Uh, we even see that with our Lord. Uh, there was a sort of a sense among the ancients of, you know, uh, encountering God in the desert. You're alone with the quiet and you're with yourself and Him. 
and this is when you can see things more clearly. And so uh, that pers- that went on not just in not just in uh, Judaism with John the Baptist and with our Lord and with Elijah and others, uh, but in the early early years of monasticism too. Uh, and then for the lay people, that then became something that well, you can't practically speaking go off into the desert and live there and eat on you know locusts and and so on, but. Uh, you can take some time out from the world to do the same kind of reflection that the monks would do. In a similar way, pilgrimages to go to be able to go to Jerusalem and the holy places is not always possible. So St. Francis came up with the idea of the way of the cross. Uh, and so these devotional practices come out of something real and concrete in the life and practice of the church, often are very do- deeply rooted in the history of the church and even in the history of revealed religion, and as in both the Old Testament and the New. And so in all of those cases, it's about that encounter with God. And we're going to know God better the more we know ourselves. So a retreat often uh, starts with a good examination of conscience, a good reflection on where I am at in the spiritual life. Uh, In a guided retreat, a spiritual director would certainly be helping you to do that, to find a way uh, in which you can, you know, to to standards. Uh, So Ignatius of Loyola, for example, his spiritual exercises were such a uh, a thing that came out of his own practice, a, a guide. And that's why you can use guides to find, you know, to guide your time of reflection on, on say, the life of Christ and the example of Christ, and then on our own life. And what, are we living up to that example? Where do we fall short of that example? And I think Becoming Christ-like is then becomes the essence of that time away from the world, whether it's the time of the Desert Fathers or whether it's the time that we can take out of a busy schedule uh, to do that. But it's so important to do that. We can sort of continue it in daily examinations of conscience, in our spiritual reading and prayer life. We can do it in our at least monthly confession by which we bring our consciences to the church and through the ministry of the church have them uh, healed and corrected and for, and our sins forgiven. Uh, but all of those things are, are centered on that becoming like Christ, to becoming another Christ, as Scripture puts it. And that's what's at the center, not just of retreats, but of all of all the spiritual practices in the Church. Now, talk a little bit about this whole notion of a silent retreat. You know, what's the, what's the idea behind that, and is there... Is there a certain level of spiritual maturity that one would want to uh, exhibit before they would want to consider something like that? Um, yeah, I, so the last is the easiest, most definitely. I've been on silent retreats which devolved into non-silence, and it's easy enough to do because, you know, we are social people, human nature, and so uh, that happens uh, easily. Uh, of course, taking the example of the Desert Fathers again, they were very often alone. Uh, the practice of hermits preceded the practices of community life, whether it's in the Judean desert or in the Egyptian desert or in, or, or in Italy under Benedict, uh, St. Benedict, of course. So in, in all of those cases, you starting with yourself, and the solitude gives you that space uh, that you know, even a community retreat doesn't give you. 
Um, and silent retreats get taken in community even don't necessarily give you unless you observe uh, the silence. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult thing in our modern world. How many of us, you know, have our, uh, you know, our AirPods up to our ear most of the day for one reason or another, work or play, entertainment, whatever it is. Uh, so that, I think today, more than ever, is really needed. And the last thing I want to touch on here is is uh, most of us have had um, a- at least one positive retreat experience. And I think for the most part, most people who intentionally go about the business of making a retreat uh, find it fruitful and, and they find it profitable. And at the end of the day, they're glad that they did it. Mm-hmm. But the feelings, the feelings, both spiritual and emotional, that we come away from these events with are often fleeting. What are some tips for carrying the retreat, you know, down the road beyond the retreat period? Right. And I, th- I think the first thing is to remember the reality, which is the doctrine of the church, and that is that feelings are indeed fleeting. This is not of the essence of what you go there for. It's something that God gives you in order to support your, you might say, taking, uh, uh, taking stock on the one hand and also uh, integrating the experience of the r- retreat into your life. And so I think consolation is very much something that most people feel. But then to realize that you, you know, going out, you're not always going to have that. Um, the, I guess you could say it's like the honeymoon period in a marriage, but then there's the day-to-day work and, you you know, the, the bumping elbows and all the things that go on in life and in work life and whatever, uh, however form our life takes. And so... But it does give you an anchor. It gives you a point of reflection of what's important and what is key. And that's something you can to return to in your mind and in your heart in the midst of troubles and difficulties. And so I think it serves that, uh, that purpose as well. And I think for, for most people who don't have that opportunity, they should look for that opportunity. There are many religious communities that give retreats. Uh, here in our Birmingham area, of course, we have the sister servants that uh, bring in uh, speakers, uh, some of whom are on open line and on other programs, like uh, uh, Father, uh, Father Milady is uh, quite often there. So those are the kinds of situations that then when you go out from them and you're in the battle of the world, you have something to look back at and to know that God is with you. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today, but it is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses for the month of December from EWTN Publishing, Adoption, Should You, Could You, and Then What? From our old buddy, Dr. Ray Garendi, straight answers from a psychologist and adoptive father of 10, 10 adopted children. 
His lovely wife, Randy, has 11 adopted children because you have to count Ray as one of the children that she's responsible for. But drawing from his professional and personal experience, as well as scientific research, Dr. Ray provides authentic answers to challenging real-life questions regarding adoption, uh, things like healthy motives and reasons to adopt, relationships, if any, between adopted children and their birth parents, uh, adopting children of other races. Uh, Dr. Ray is a very racially diverse uh, family of 10. All those and much more you can find in Adoption, Should You, Could You, and Then What, available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com by Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. Again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our uh, Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. We're going to empty out the mailbag a little bit. Leading off today, Linda writes in, she says, Is the Eucharist necessary for salvation? Uh, Well, of course it is necessary uh, because our Lord said that it was, but the Church has struggled to understand what that means. Does that mean that those who have no opportunity to know of the Eucharist, uh, that it excludes them from salvation. We know as a absolute matter that's not the case. The just of the Old Testament, they had the precursors of the Eucharist in the manna and, and so on, but they didn't have the Eucharist. Uh, so the Church says that the necessity of having the Eucharist is really, you know, as, as an instrument of salvation— it is essential, and that is when one knows that Christ is your Savior, when one knows that the Church is his bride in this project of our salvation, when one knows that our Lord has established the Holy Eucharist as the means of uh, gaining eternal life through this transformation which Eucharistic communion gives us, Uh, in which the seed of eternal life is planted in us and we water it and we cooperate with the graces that the Lord gives, then one has an obligation to follow that. For other people for whom these things are not known, either in some absolute sense or in a sense that you think many of our uh, people raised in Protestant traditions, they've been taught that this is foolishness, that this is papist nonsense, that it's you know, false worship and so on. That has to be overcome. And we have to recognize that in speaking about the Eucharist to others. And with speaking about what Scripture calls necessary for salvation, we have to understand it the way the Church understands it. Uh, And so, yes, the Eucharist is necessary because Christ establishes as such. But the moral element of that is we're not obliged to those means which are outside our grasp. Either by impossibility, we lived before the Eucharist, or we live in a way, in a place in the world where there is no Eucharist, or not known, or moral impossibility, and that is all those obstacles which, in the conscience of the individual, they think this is blasphemous. They think the Catholics are wrong about this and many other things. That has to be overcome by grace, by education. And when that is, and it dawns on them, then they become obliged. That's the time of obligation because there, there is nothing in their conscience to prevent them keeping that obligation which Christ laid on us in sacred scripture and which the church continues to lay on us in her teaching. 
Once again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Vera writes in, if you die with a mortal sin on your soul, do you go to hell? And does one mortal sin send you to hell? One unrepentant mortal sin breaks our bond with God. And dying in that absence of bond of charity, a bond of love with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no other possible destination than away from the Most Blessed Trinity. And hell is that place. Those who die with venial faults, who have not broken those bonds by grave sin done knowingly and intentionally, uh, and have not repented from them, as certainly provided in the Church through the Sacrament of Reconciliation, uh, can go to purgatory. But for those who knowingly, willingly, and intentionally, without repentance, die in a single mortal sin, they die separated from God, and there is no way of repairing that. Christ was given to the world, the Church is given to the world, to repair that bond in the life of the mortal person. And when that mortality has ended, then the choice of possibility of choosing salvation has also ended. Klaus would like to know, how do we have free will if God already knows all that we will do? Yeah, that, that's a, a very common question, and it's a tremendous mystery. Um, you know, theologians have struggled with that. Uh, the Church doesn't bl- uh, oblige any particular solution. But I think you, when you know that the Church does not say that we are absolutely destined to eternal ha- to life, eternal life, or to eternal damnation— then the question of free will comes into play. And that relationship between the graces God offers us and the free will of the individual to accept those graces and be transformed uh, into a Christ-like person. And so those opportunities go on throughout life, and God knows how we will deal with those. And there will some that he will know he knows will never correspond to those offerings. And as our Lord said in the gospel, uh, you know, do not spread your pearls before swine. God does not waste time giving graces to those who are completely and perfectly in his foreknowledge, absolutely indisposed to receive uh, the graces that he offers. But he gives them to any who are open in any measure, even to the last moment of their life. So it is in this mystery of grace, of foreknowledge, and free will that all of that takes place. And God understands it perfectly. We understand it very imperfectly, uh, like God himself in a mirror darkly. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we, we believe by faith that this is the way the, that it works. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Friday. Uh, we won't be taking your phone calls today. Kevin writes in, can you explain why the church allows First Communion for children prior to confirmation, while adults can't receive until after confirmation? Um, that's, that's only true because most adults who come into the church uh, come in by way of reception into the church and the completion of their uh, initiation in a single event. 
typically the Easter vigil, but it could be done at other times. And so uh, if they are baptized, they are confirmed and receive the Eucharist in a single, single event. If they are unbaptized, they are baptized, confirmed, and receive the Eucharist, the complete uh, initiation into Christ all in that one moment uh, in, that, uh, in that liturgy. So it depends entirely on their circumstances. With children, they're baptized at their birth, typically, if they're born into a Catholic family or shortly shortly thereafter. And then they're confirmed and they receive First Communion and First Confession at the age of reason. This is because in the Church's mind, as it developed in the West, as opposed to the Eastern Catholic and the Orthodox churches, which give all the sacraments at uh, at uh, into an infant right then at baptism uh, it is that the readiness for uh, for the Eucharist requires that one be ready to also receive confession in other words if there's mortal sin to be able to confess and so preparation for first confession precedes Holy Communion at the Eucharistic uh, at uh, at reason uh, but in the law of the church, all of those things can take place at the same time. So, for example, in Canada in the, in the 50s, I was, I was confirmed, first confession, first communion, uh, all in the same weekend. I did the first confession and the first, uh, well, the first confession the day before, and then on Sunday the bishop confirmed us and we received Holy Communion. And so that order was preserved of baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. Uh, so in many places today, uh, in dioceses both in the United States and in other, in other countries, they reserve giving confirmation to children until later in life. I personally don't think that's a good idea to wait till 12 or 14. I think they need the graces now. But that's a freedom that each uh, bishop has, at least in the United States, to make that decision. Uh, but it does disrupt the order of the, sa- of the sacraments of initiation because it pushes confirmation to last. Um, so that order is less significant than the fact of those sacraments. Uh, and historically, in different places and different times, they have been done in a different order. Obviously, in all cases, baptism being the first sacrament of initiation received. Yeah, I'm not sure I don't prefer the way they do it in the Eastern Rite churches by uh, administering all three sacraments to the infants. Right, and then there would be catechesis. I I think, I'm not sure how many of them do it this way or or what the practices are, because every every church is sui juris. In other words, they have their own laws on these things. Uh, but yeah, they wait, some wait, or maybe most wait, or maybe all wait until the age of reason to give that second communion. So the, initi- the initiation into is completed with all three sacraments uh, with baptism, uh, but uh, then communion is received a second time at the age of reason, when it's also then possible to catechize for uh, first confession as well. Well, and I don't know how you feel, but, but also it, it eliminates sort of a, of a teenage stepping away from the faith point with, you know, which confirmation unfortunately has become for some of our young people. You know, it, it has, and of course, I think in some dioceses they've reverted to the general law, which is at the age of reason, um, and of course that would be a complete reversion to the uh, historical early church practice to go back to all three in the beginning. 
so I think that 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 has been the concern. I, I think the way the last 40 years has progressed, however, I'm not sure that waiting to give the grace of confirmation till the teenage years is not been demonstrated to be ineffective. Uh, so why not give it at the age of reason, as the general law has it, uh, and let's let God do what God does and keep these kids in the faith and give them uh, the graces they need for life. Because already grave sins uh, in most of the ca- areas of capital sin are being committed by 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 years old. And, you know, so you waited. <laughs> Give it yeah. to them early. That's my view. <laughs> You're listening to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday featuring our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We are indeed emptying out the mailbag today here on this Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. David writes in, Why did Mary and Joseph have to make the sacrifice of two turtle doves if Mary is the Immaculate Conception? Well, this is because uh, it conformed to the to the law, and uh, in doing that, that was the 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 sacrifice of the poor, uh, and so they were poor and they complied with that. You know, the the mistaken idea I think whether it's the case of our Lord or Mary and Joseph is that because we now know retrospectively their holiness. It was unnecessary for them to have complied with the law of Moses, the covenantal law that Moses agreed Israel would comply with. And although our Lord abrogates those things in establishing the church, he had not yet done so. They proved themselves faithful Jews by observing the, that, uh, the, the Mosaic law until Christ himself established the new covenant. And of course, uh, Joseph had already died by then, and Our Lady, of course, uh, was in some all sense already the first member of the church. Uh, although we typically say the church was born on, you know, at Pentecost, or it may be conceived out, of, out on the cross, or born on Pentecost, however you want to explain those two things. Uh, but in some sense, Our Lady and Our Lord already, as the new Adam and the new Eve, were already the you know the the core of the of the new covenant, uh, formally established, of course, in the blood of Christ on on Calvary. Uh, Miriam asks, when is the soul formed and how? Yeah, um, that's that's sort of a parts kind of thought. In other words, as if. You know, body, soul, let's mix the two together, you know, flour and water in the Eucharist, in the, in the bread used for the Eucharist, for example. No, there is something mysterious there in the fact that in the moment in which the, you know, the, the seed of the mother and the father are united and form a new individual, 
a new biological individual, genetically, as we might say in light of the Supreme Court discussion on abortion this week. We have a human being from that moment. And what makes them a human being? The rational soul, because in that moment, that that individual, that new one-celled individual, has a rational and soul infused by God. Not as a part, but as in complete unity with the uh, with the body, so that the two are one substance, uh, as philosophers speak of it. Uh, so we can't break them up into parts like that. The separation of the soul at death is, as we see in the dying, is a very wrenching experience, because in some way that this is the personal part of us, the the intellect and the will of the individual. And so uh, we see, in a way, the reverse of that, and the soul survives death because the spirit is immortal and can, is not destroyed. The body, of course, uh, corrupts. And so we see the reverse of that in that moment, um, and we know by faith that what is that uh, that human person uh, made up of the whole of soul and body from the moment of conception uh, now continues to exist until the body is restored at the general resurrection. And I think that's a, a, a very comforting thought for Christians, that uh, we will be fully who God intended us to be, body and soul, once again uh, at the resurrection at the end of time. We're emptying out the mailbag today on EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we won't be taking your phone calls. Thomas writes in, What does the Catholic Church teach about the origin of morality? Well, that it's uh, bound with uh, with our nature. Uh, you could go down the go down the commandments dealing with man, uh, four through ten, for example, and you could see that each one of those things uh, is logically concluded from the nature of, of man. Uh, that we have our origin uh, from from parents. Uh, they have responsibilities for us. We have responsibilities for them. The fourth commandment. Uh, that we should we we want to live, and we should not demand that other ones others surrender their life uh, for our enjoyment and for for our convenience or whatever it is. The fifth commandment: Natures want to live. Everything that is existing wants to continue in existing, uh, existing. Uh, that which uh, you know that which forms the 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 goods that are related to producing the fruit of marriage, children. Uh, because not only does the good of individuals, the good of the family, and the good of society depend on that's covered by logical law, if you will. The natural law is no more than the, the, the logical consequences of disrupting that's, that's, that particular setting, uh, whether it's in adultery or pornography or whatever it is. Uh, and you can continue on going through there in the relationship of each of those things to the nature of man. So from our creation, human nature already tells us what its purpose and its end is. And violation of that purpose and end is a fault against that nature. Morally, we call that a sin. It's a violation of the natural law, and since God revealed through Moses the Ten Commandments, it's been declared to be a violation of the divine law, because those who believe in God will take the natural law as more than simply something of nature that we can ignore and change and warp to our own needs and necessities, as our modern world is doing in so many 
ways in the scientific and metal, medical fields, but rather as something that has weight and has a, and we have an obligation to it. And for the believer, that obligation is not just to our human nature and what it teaches us about ourselves and our lives and our uh, the purpose of our life, but what God has revealed about that human nature uh, and through his moral law. So it's both natural and supernatural, or you might say revealed in the created uh, human person as well as in uh, revealed by God uh, as he did through Moses and perfected, uh, our knowledge perfected through uh, Christian revelation. Uh, so both of those are the fonts of the moral law, and both of those are discoverable by human beings. Um, cultures all over the world and through time have discovered parts of the moral law, of the natural moral law, but in very few cases, if any, all of it. With revelation, we know all of it, and so our obligation uh, to believers is, is greater than it is to those who do not have belief. Again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we're not taking any phone calls today. You may want to... Uh Make sure that Siobhan listens to this episode of Open Line Friday. Melissa writes in and she says, As a 21-year-old female college student, how do I explain to my non-Catholic friends why modesty and abstinence are so important for me? Well, uh, in a way, I guess I just discussed that in terms of reflection on the Sixth Commandment, that the purposes of our nature and of our sexual faculties uh, is for children. Uh, there is pleasure attached to it, to be sure. And uh, as St. Thomas and many other authors have written over the years, uh, that's a good, like the pleasure attached to eating. But just as we know that, you know, picking out on unhealthy food or just picking out in general produces, uh, you know, bodily wounds, diseases, and many other things, uh, so does the abuse of our other faculties. Um, even though they are pleasurable and purposeful all in, in the same breath, as it were. And so modesty and practicing chastity, these things are connected in guarding the ambit of human sexuality and human reproduction so that they are properly directed towards their ends. And when you don't do that, we see a landscape of disaster around us in our world, uh, the effects of all of that, whether it's children born out of wedlock or whether it's uh, individuals with uh, diseases, with, uh, uh, you know, having to go through life on their own with a child and, and so on. All of these things are consequences of the abuse of that particular faculty, just as diseases of eating are consequences of the abuse of that faculty to which God has been generously tied a pleasure, but also an obligation which, when it's violated, will have consequences. And we've got a great question here from Roger. Uh, he says, My son's IQ is below 70, and he lacks the cognitive ability to make decisions. So can he willfully commit mortal sin? Well, probably only God knows the degree of his uh, ability to make that distinguishing. Uh, but as a general matter, matter, those who are without the cognitive facility to distinguish between, uh, you know, good and evil, sin and good behavior and so on, uh, could not sin. Uh, and so that's, you know, the, we, we say this of children when they're innocent and they're 
their mental faculties, their their organ of, they have the soul, they have the intellect, the spiritual faculty, but they don't have the instrument that that faculty will use in, uh, and that is the brain has not developed to the point, and the moral sense has not developed to that proper point either. So similarly, those who never develop, as it were, to the age of reason, to which the age of reason never arrives, as it were, uh, would also be free from and incapable of, of sin, uh, whatever the cause, whether it's, uh, you know, a developmental cause or whether it's, uh, you know, something else that uh, intervenes to prevent that development. Uh, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a mailbag edition of Open Line Friday with uh, Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology. Bradley writes in, Can Roman Catholics venerate Orthodox saints like Gregory Palamas or St. Mark of Ephesus? Um, well, I would give a qualified yes. I think the best thing to do uh, is that to check, of course, not everybody has this on their shelf like I do, uh, the Roman Martyrology, which has many Eastern saints on it, because obviously are uh, the Byzantine Catholics, the Ukrainian Catholics, and so on, the the Cyril Malabar, Cyril Malabar, yeah, Cyril Malabar, the Co- Catholic Copts, uh, the different uh, Eastern churches, uh, they have saints which we Romans have never heard of. Um, I like to get those calendars and find out, you know, who's up to bat that day. And uh, we have the good fortune, we have Robert Klesko in our department, who is a Ruthenian Rite Catholic, uh, and he keeps up, uh, us up to speed on the Eastern uh, uh, the Eastern Saints in the liturgical days and so on. So uh, I think that's a great a great blessing to know some of those things. As John Paul II always said, you have the two lungs. You have the, the Roman lung or the Western lung and the Eastern lung. And so it's good to be informed about those. And some of those names will be in the Roman martyrology because they're so old, they go back to the first millennium. And some of them will be in the uh, in the liturgical calendars of the Eastern Church. And I think th- that would be the place to look as to who in the East uh, you might venerate, rather than, say, uh, uh, an Orthodox calendar from the Orthodox churches. Emily wants to know, what is the significance of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and not the Father? Well, it's uh, the relationship there is determined by the relationship within the Trinity, Uh, And that is that in God, in acting outside of himself, he acts according to the relations and the processions, uh, as they're called, within the Trinity. So the Father is the source of all. The Son is called the Word because he's sort of like an intellectual act of the Godhead. And the Holy Spirit is uh, love because it's like a will act. Those would be analogies to the human to our human nature, they probably don't even come close to capturing uh, the truth as it is in God. And so when God has acted outside of himself, we then attribute in particular ways uh, different uh, acts or missions, as they are called, of God outside himself or at extra. And that means we refer to the Father generally as creator, we refer to the Son as redeemer, and to the Holy Spirit as sanctifier and uh and the one who will glorify us also at the end. And it's 
in the church that the Holy Spirit is working now. It's why Christ had the apostles gather to to pray and call down of the Holy Spirit upon them. So this Holy Spirit has been described the soul of the church for that reason. And so this is the reason that we don't make attribution of all of that God does to the Son, for example, to Christ. Uh, his salvific role is clear, unique, and is attributed uh, to the to the to the divine word, but we cannot, for example, say that the Father died on the cross or the Holy Spirit died on the cross. Only that Christ, the Word, in taking human nature, in other words, God and man, died on the cross. So we only make that attribution to the second person of the Trinity. So a lot of this has to do with the attributions that are made to the three divine persons and the consequences in the created universe uh, for those acts of the Holy Trinity outside of itself. And so that'll define a lot of the area you've asked about. Uh, Martin would like to know, what does the grace of final perseverance mean? Don't we all have this grace? And if not, why? Well, that means that we have the grace to get to the last moment of our life in communion with God, to persevere. We can go back to St. Paul who said, who spoke about, you know, running, he himself personally, running the good fight. And so many of the sacred authors talk about persevering, persevering to the end, which sort of squashes the idea of any kind of once saved, always saved. No, we are in a battle, and we have to fight to the end. If we abandon the battlefield before the end, we lose the victory. Uh, And so the grace of final perseverance is to get to the end of the battle. And for most of us, that's not the battle for the world or the battle at the end of time. It's the battle in our own life to conquer ourselves, to overcome sin, and to die in the grace of God. And so at the end, there will be a trial. Most of the saints and spiritual writers have spoken of this, the trial of the end of life, when the devil is pulling out his last stops, uh, when everything will... When, if we're prone to be discouraged, for example, discouraged by sickness, discouraged by our, uh, you know, fate in the world, by what happens to us in the circumstances of life, all of this will sort of come home to roost in that moment. So it's not only good to persevere through all of those situations beforehand as a way of developing the the spiritual strength, the patience, the long-suffering, the fortitude and that. Obviously, to depend upon the grace of God in that gift of fortitude, which is for that particular moment. It's generally said this is what gets the martyrs through martyrdom, but it gets everybody through the hour of death. We need that grace of fortitude and to continue to the end. So in praying for the grace of perseverance, we're praying to be able to do that. But that doesn't mean we wait till the end to start working towards that end. We have to, in life, try to develop those virtues of perseverance and long-suffering so that when the time comes, whatever tricks the devil tries to play, or even our own mind, or even our you know, guilt and over our sins in life, when we're tempted to despair, we can overcome those by hope and faith in God, hope in God, love of God, and the gift of fortitude. So that's really what we're talking about with the grace of final perseverance. It's not guaranteed, 
It's something that we have to ask for and work toward throughout our life. But God will give it generously if we do ask it, and that's something uh, that we should always keep in mind as well. Be sure to check out Catholic Answers Live tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, two full hours of Jimmy Aiken. And as the Catholic Answers website says, you can expect some weird questions. Uh, Jimmy will take those from all comers. So that's Catholic Answers Live with Jimmy Aiken, two full hours of Jimmy tonight, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, we're wrapping up another mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. And Francis writes in and she says, I am curious about the minor orders of the church. What are they and what were their duties? Okay. Uh, the minor orders, uh, obviously distinguishable from the major orders, are the liturgical roles and the sacramental roles and relation, mostly in relationship to the sacraments. And how those were given out, uh, if you think of the, the, the things that normally constitute the minor orders, uh, we have the, uh, the order of, of porter is generally considered. And this was the one that greeted, greets the people and brings them into the church and, and serves the door, as it were. Uh, we have the order of exorcist. Uh, obviously, if you're on your way into the you know, into the church there are, were, and this is probably, I'm not sure we know exactly how that worked out, but there was a role for uh, the exorcisms within the, in the catechumen uh, for, this, uh, for this minor order. There is lector, which we're certainly f- uh, familiar with. Some people are installed in it. That would have been traditionally called the minor order. And the order of acolyte, which is to serve at the altar. Um, we generally see those two top ones, if you will, lectern acolyte, in the more non-clerical roles of reader and altar server. So little boys and now girls who serve at the altar are fulfilling some of the duties of the acolyte. But in the early church, they also took the Eucharist to the sick, like St. Tarsisius. And, of course, we have that in home ministries today as well. Those are uh, not called minor orders today, at least not in the uh, Roman church generally. Uh, They would still be in the... um, uh, in those communities which celebrate celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, uh, part of their formation, such as the Fraternity of St. Peter and the Society of St. Pius X, where they form men in those traditional uh, orders. And there is also a another one from the historically called the Subdiaconate, uh, which was it's almost like a doorway into the major orders, which are the diaconate, the priesthood, and the episcopacy. Uh, so that's the, the distinction, and they came up for very practical reasons, were consecrated, if you will, for those roles in the, in the church. We speak of them as major and minor historically, uh, or as holy orders and uh, ministries today are more typical terms. Uh, but they developed by a real practical need. And they can, as I noted, be fulfilled outside of any pathway in the seminary or to holy orders. 
uh, by lay people in the parish who are delegated to those roles as uh, lector and acolyte or uh, some kind of home ministry that means taking, uh, well, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, for example, is a function uh, that is parsed off of, uh, if you will, from the, the role of the acolyte. And finally today, Joanne wants to know what's the difference between what differences are there between Eastern Rite and Western Rite Catholics? Well, the difference is historical. Uh, the gospel taken to the East and by some of the apostles developed into historically uh, distinctive churches. Uh, the you could say that the faith as all the apostles held it and the sacraments as they all understood them were incarnated in the particular forms according to those cultures. And so both the Western churches and the Eastern churches maintain uh, that long trajectory of history from the early church and the apostles uh, through those cultural incarcerations, whether in uh, Byzantium or in uh, Kerala in India or uh, Armenia or in Egypt, uh, where they uh, had a different flavor and, in some cases, a different law and a different approach, uh, where they took in theology different approaches, say, than the, in the Western. And so all of those things come together, but at the base is what is essential in the Christian faith, and that is divine revelation and uh, the teachings of Christ, which the Church has, has, has identified and settled on, and the liturgical forms at the core of each of the sacraments. Because however you're dressed in the liturgy in whatever form the particular liturgy takes, those are the things which are, uh, are that count. Those are the things that give grace through those sacramental uh, matter and form, uh, and how the, it is dressed, as you will, for the benefit of of bringing the gospel to a particular culture becomes secondary uh, to that. But humanly, that's very important because it shows respect for those cultures, and in, in that way, it's an invitation to living the faith in a particular culture in a particular way that's unique to you. Uh, and, and that's something that's very precious. And as I said, as John Paul II would say, we need to breathe with both lungs of the churches and to recognize the beauty in both the East and the West, and the beauty of the liturgical forms in the East and the West, um, and, and what they have done over the centuries to bring the gospel of Christ to those particular peoples. And Eastern Rite should not be confused with Eastern Orthodox. That's correct. Good point. In fact, we generally say Eastern churches, even though their rites are the liturgies that they, they use. Very good. Well, Colin, thank you so much, as always, for being so gracious with your time. Have a great weekend. And you as well. All right. That's our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. On behalf of Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it next week on Open Line Monday. Until then, God bless.